We live in uh, strange times. And before we lift up our prayer together, I want to talk to you. Uh, depending on where you go for your news, you've either seen the government and police praised by the state-funded media for their measured and principled approach to what amounts to a terrorist invasion, or else you've watched footage from countless phones as unarmed Canadian protesters, including women and children, were gassed and pepper sprayed and beaten at the end of rifle butts this weekend, and then watched a, a very elderly First Nations woman on a mobility scooter trampled by police horses while she chanted love, happiness, and peace. And so now we have those who have already been marginalized have had their painful cries silenced. Freedom and the recognition of human and civil rights does not come as a result of a secularist society. Tyranny is the only alternative to a society that recognizes the supremacy of God as this nation once did. The Canadian Charter begins by recognizing this truth, that unless we recognize the supremacy of God, we have no basis for granting freedom to citizens. Let me read it for you. It says, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in. It is on the basis of God's rule. And so we now have in our country, this is not new evil. This is just unmasked. We now have in our country laws by which we can put children to death. Laws by which we can put the elderly to death. Laws by which we can put the mentally ill to death. And we now have laws in Canada by which you and I could be arrested for our beliefs. This isn't something now in the future. This isn't something years away from us. This is now. We now have laws by which if I read certain passages of scripture here and we put it on the live stream and it goes to the internet, that we can be imprisoned. And so I had a conversation with my children a couple of months ago. Dad's probably going to jail sometime. Ever since we looked at Genesis chapter 34 and the defilement of Dinah and of the city of Shechem, I have been convinced that the church must avoid the evils of Jacob and his sons. We must not be passive as Jacob was in the face of atrocity and oppression. But we must not return evil for evil, reviling for reviling as his sons did in their righteous anger. No, the church must live in radical, self-denying proclamation of the truth. We must be willing to be publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, Hebrews 10.32-34. We must joyfully accept the plundering of our property, knowing that we have a better possession 
and an abiding one. We must comfort the afflicted. And we must lament. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in thanksgiving. You have freely granted us what we do not deserve. You have granted us every heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus. His inheritance is ours because of his perfect obedience. And Lord, we thank you that you promise that you are working all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so we have hope. A better possession and an abiding one. Father, we come to you this morning in repentance. Where our concern has been for our own selfish desires. Where we have been unloving. In our arguments. In our pursuits. Forgive us, Lord. May when we see the evil of this world, see the evil that resided in each one of us, and that we undeservedly receive freedom from slavery to sin through the work of Jesus. Father, we come to you this morning in lament. In the last two years, we have debated with loved ones. We have battled serious illness. We have wrestled with how to respond to regulations, especially regulations of your church. We have lamented deaths here in this place. And in all of these things felt further dehumanized at every turn. Our country is confused and without any fear of the Lord and their care for each other. And so, Lord, we pray for the distressed. We pray that you would comfort them in their affliction and that they would not fall into violence in their desperation. We pray for our government. We ask that you would cause them to care and listen to every citizen equally. We ask that you would bring our country back to a place that recognizes the supremacy of God and thereby lives by the rule of law and the charter of rights and freedoms. And Lord, we pray for our sanctification. Help us to model listening and compassion with every side. Asking questions speaking boldly, but demonstrating that compassion and empathy are often more powerful than arguments. Use this situation, we pray, for our discipline and discipleship as you form us into your image. 
May we live in bold expression of the hope and joy and peace we have in you so that we would be prepared to share the reason for our hope. And so I pray that you would actively move us into a place of bold gospel proclamation and that we would not be bogged down in divisions but that we would glorify We ask this for the glorification of Jesus in this world. Amen. <coughs> this week, uh, my dad and Leighton and I are preaching at a pastor's conference in India via Zoom. <laughs> and so we're preparing for that. And so I asked uh, my, my friend Mike LaRusso, Michael LaRusso, do you prefer Michael? I always call him Mike. And uh, to, he has graciously come with almost no notice to come and preach for us this morning. And so I'm excited to have him here. Anyway, so glad to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from uh, your brothers and sisters down in High River at the High River Baptist Church. You need to know that they're praying for you, probably mostly because uh, I'm subjecting you to my preaching, and they've been subjected to that for quite a while. Anyway, they... Um, <laughs> No, it is glad, I am glad to be with you, and um, it is a blessing. I, I, I really appreciate this church and the fact that you, as a church body, have a value. You have demanded uh, expository preaching, and oh, how we need to be a people uh, that are about the preaching of God's Word. My, my prayer is that there will be more, more churches across our great province and in this nation who unashamedly, boldly open up the text of Scripture and preach it to God's people and then see the Word of God transform our people. Uh, this morning, I want to speak to you out of 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, and this morning, I, I want to use this text uh, to zero in on what I think is one of the Bible's biggest themes. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about grace. I want to talk about the grace of God. By the way, if you're, if you're not in the uh, Sunday school class this morning, you would have missed a, a really good discussion on the grace of God already. Uh, that was a, an excellent class, and I'm so glad to be present there and to hear about the grace of God in that context. Grace will be the theme, as it even has been today, but it will be the theme of our song uh, for all of eternity, the song of the redeemed. Why do we need to think about it? You were created... Brother and sister, you were created to know and to enjoy 
God to stand in awe before the wonder of his glory, to receive his love, and then to respond in worshipful praise. This is what you are for. Looking intently into the word of God ought to be like heaping kindling onto the fires of our worship. And some of the best kindling, the kindling that ought to sustain and ignite and the flame of our worship is knowledge of the grace of God. Especially how he shows, reveals this grace in the work of salvation. This is true, brother and sister, because the Bible says, He who has been forgiven much, loves much. Let's pray together. Father, we ask. that your spirit would graciously be at work in our hearts in this very moment. That we would receive the word, the implanted, imperishable seed of the gospel and it would blossom in our hearts. Father, that our worship would be turned toward you Father, we pray against the evil one who seeks to, even in the moment of hearing, seeks to steal away the word before it can penetrate our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would stand against him so that we might be different for having been under the preaching of your word even as today. Father, we thank you for your grace which you have so richly lavished upon us, undeserving sinners. We ask that you would provide help now for us to see different facets of this beautiful truth. We pray it in Jesus' name, who is coming again. Amen. And so we need to study the grace of God for the sake of our worship. But we also must study it for the sake of our sanctification. When we savor the grace of God, having seen it, having received it and rejoiced in it, we will soon find ourselves strangely changed by it. That is, the grace of God has a transformative power in the life of the Christian. Christians ought to be the most gracious people on the planet. We ought to show mercy to the outcasts, to the marginalized peoples of the world. If there is one who is lacking grace, you can almost say with certainty that that person has not spent sufficient time praising God for his grace and that has some degree or another nursed a heart of legality, believing that he's somehow worthy of all the blessings that he's received. At least more worthy than the next God. However, when we give ourselves to the contemplation of God's great grace towards us, our pride will be chastened 
and will not hesitate to extend this grace to others, to speak to others often about God's grace, to call whosoever will to come, to come and drink from the waters of life freely. See, understanding God's grace will make us a gracious people. Only the gospel is actually able to produce this caliber of gracious act and mercy. Only the gospel. It is not gracious, loving acts to the disenfranchised peoples of the world is not the result of the woke ideologies of our day. It is not the result of the secularism of the new atheists. No, it is a byproduct of the gospel. The gospel alone, the gospel of the free justification of God is able to produce this type of merciful action that we see in this passage. The passage we're looking at this morning tells us a story. It's the story of radical, indestructible, some might even say scandalous, grace. The story, however, is situated where it is to function like a scaled-down version, if you will, of the big story of redemption that runs through the whole Bible from beginning to end. That being said, we're meant to use this little story to help us understand our position in the big story of God's grace. As we do that, there are at least three essential qualities about God's grace that I want you to see in this text. Number one, grace reaches out. It does not sit passively by, but it is an active grace that pursues sinners. It reaches out. That is, there is this outward orientation to grace. Number two, grace by very nature lands upon the unworthy. Grace never comes to those who are worthy of it. Then it would not be grace, it would be justice. And finally, grace is radical. It's lavish and it's rich and it's superabounding towards sinners. And it goes far beyond what we could ever imagine or what is even required. So grace reaches out, grace lands on the unworthy, and grace is radical. Now there's a bit of a History behind the story that we need to catch up on if you're going to fully appreciate this text. At this point in time, David, David is a few years into his reign as king. Now Israel, as a people, did not always have a king. Not that God didn't intend to give them one, 
But it needed to be in his timing and according to his law. And the people grew impatient. They wanted a king. But not the sort of king that God had in mind. They wanted a king like all the other nations. And so God gave them exactly what they wanted. Isn't that interesting that sometimes God will give you exactly what you want? So God gave them Saul. And he was made the first king of Israel. And at first he looked rather promising. But his incredible arrogance eventually cost him everything. God rejected Saul and had Samuel anoint another man in his place. And however, this time, instead of a man with external, great external pedigree, instead of a tall man, a, a powerful man, instead of a rich man, God chose a humble, young shepherd boy. By God's providence, David is actually invited into the very court of Saul where he begins to gain popularity. And it isn't long before David's popularity rating begins to get to Saul. And then Saul goes on this long and obsessive hunt for David, seeking his life. And Saul, along with Jonathan, and other of his sons meet their bitter end in a battle against the Philistines. And after a short period of time, David, after waiting for so long, after being on the run for so long, David is finally installed as Israel's new king. Chapters 5 to 10 of 2 Samuel tell us how David came into the height of his power. That's what these chapters are all about. Let's consider our first point then, that grace reaches out. Look down there at verse 1. And David said, is there, now this is after David comes into power, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's a cripple. And his feet... And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to, king, to the king, He is in the house of, house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. What I want, you to get a, I want you to get a sense of the weight of what we just read there. David is at the very height of his power. And the question that he asks himself is this. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The word there that's rendered kindness is actually the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. It is the most frequently translated as mercy or loving kindness 
or favor. It speaks of God's grace. It speaks of God's covenant, loyal, committed love for his people. And if you look down at verse 3, we see that David has in mind not just any sort of love, but the kindness, he says, the love, the mercy, you could say, of God in verse 3. God's chesed, his merciful, covenantal love for his people. If you look a couple of chapters back, In 2 Samuel, the 2 Samuel 7, you see that David, David himself has been personally embraced by God's covenantal love. David had been on, just a few chapters before, had been on the receiving end of this love. And now David wishes to extend this love to others. This kindness, this passage, seeks to give us a clear picture of what God's grace looks like, what it is and how it operates. What David does here, and the question that he asks, actually runs completely contrary to all human convention. You see, it's countercultural, both in David's day as well as in ours. There is a principial clash, as it were, between what we see here in this text and the human social norms of our own culture. You see, in David's day, the usual practice was to kill off all the remaining remnants of the previous dynasty in order to avoid any future conflict, just kill them all off. But David does the exact opposite here. He seeks to show kindness. He makes peace. Typically men with power tend to use their power to oppress or to exploit others beneath them. At least they tend to forget. They tend to forget, don't they, about the little guy. He gets brushed aside, as it were, to the margins. David's actions, however, are not modeled after the fallen ethics of the dog-eat-dog society in which we find ourselves today. No, David is seeking to demonstrate the kindness of God. In a sense, this is what the author of the whole book of Samuel wants you to see. He wants you to see that David and Yahweh use their power in the same way. You see, early on in the book of 1 Samuel, now originally, you have to understand that 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were not originally divided into two books, but they're one book together. But early on in 1 Samuel, we come across the song of Hannah, who praises the Lord after she was blessed with a child. Do you remember the story? Her song actually serves to set up the whole book of Samuel. 
by bringing to the fore many of the central themes of this book. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 to 10, we read these words. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. This is what God does. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard, listen brother and sister, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horns of his anointed. You see, in a moment, when we look at David's gracious action towards this son of Jonathan, this Mephibosheth, the author means for your mind to go back to Hannah's song several chapters before. And when you go back there, you're going to see all kinds of connections. And your heart ought to be stirred in worship for God. This is the sort of king that Yahweh is. This is your God, and this is how he acts. And when at his best, as we've all seen him at his worst, but when at his best, this is the sort of king that David aspired to be. What I want you to see in the first few verses, however, is this outward reach of grace. God's grace is not satisfied until it finds one to be spent upon. David, moved with love, begins to ask this simple question in verse 1. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And then down in verse 3, after Ziba, who became the manager of Saul's estate, came to him, he asked the same question again. He says, is there, still, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for God, the kindness of God to him? And again, look at verse 4. David asked the same basic question again, though in a condensed form. He simply says this, where is he? Three times David asks. And he's not going to stop asking until grace finally finds a recipient. Until the kindness of God finally meets someone. This is irresistible. This is unstoppable, invincible grace. And it means to find a recipient. Notice that it is David. Look, it is David who actually takes the initiative in the passage. Mephibosheth doesn't even have 
the sense enough to throw himself upon David's mercies until David first calls for him. And so it is with us. Until the Lord effectually calls us. Unless the Father first draws us, we would never come at all. Aren't you glad that God, in his infinite mercy, he sought you out? He didn't just sit by passively, you know, with his arms crossed. You know, well, I'll be right here as soon as you're ready. When you want to, you can come to me. No, this God sought you out. He sought you. And he would not be satisfied until he made you an object of his mercy. What sovereign love is this that seeks me out? A condemned sinner. And he calls me. And he calls me. And he calls me. Until he's made me his very own. You see this outward orientation. This great and gracious downward movement. This sovereign grasp of grace. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul has in mind in Philippians chapter 3 when he's reflecting upon his experience on the road to Damascus. He says, not that I have already obtained it, that is, laid hold of it, grasped it, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Or you could translate that he laid hold of me. He obtained me. He grasped me for his own. You see, Paul was on the road to Damascus, ready there to, to, to persecute the church of God. And in, at, at the height of his rebellion, at the height of his rejection of Jesus, it is in that moment... When the grace of God lays hold of him and a light shines and he sees, he finally sees. See, the grace of God indeed reaches out even today. The second essential quality of grace is that grace lands upon the unworthy. Look at verses 5 and 6. We're finally introduced to this one from the house of Saul. Were introduced to Mephibosheth. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, and he fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Now, Mephibosheth is actually one of those lesser known characters of the Bible. Maybe you've never heard his name before or read this story. He's got a pretty unique name. I don't know if there's any pregnant mothers here. <laughs> Maybe you want to consider naming your son Mephibosheth. Ziba tells us three things about him that help us get a good mental picture of what he's like. First, he is the son of Jonathan. Remember Jonathan, David's friend, who is also the son of Saul. And when Saul had begun his hunt for David, Jonathan 
showed David kindness, after which he and David made a covenant together. Do you remember that? That David would not cut off any of his descendants. Made a covenant. Second, we learn that Mephibosheth is crippled in both of his feet. See, in 2 Samuel 4, 4, we learn that when he was a, when the Philistines killed Saul and Jonathan and they took the city of Jezreel, Mephibosheth's nurse took him in her arms and she fled the city when he was a young child, maybe five years old. And while she was making her escape, she dropped the young prince and he was made a cripple for life. We can assume that he's also an orphan from that text because his father is killed and there's no mention of his mother at all. Finally, we learn that Mephibosheth lives, he lives out his life in relative obscurity. In a sort of exile, you could say. He's etching out a life as a societal reject, as it were. On the other side of the Jordan. He's in the house of Makur at Lodabar. Just trying to stay out of the spotlight. You know, keep a low profile. This is Mephibosheth. One Bible commentator said this. That his life, Mephibosheth, his life is a series of disasters, disappointments, and anxieties. It is a weary, broken, and dispirited soul that speaks in all of his utterances. This is Mephibosheth. You see, what you're meant to see in Mephibosheth is that there is absolutely nothing about Mephibosheth that merits such grace. David doesn't gain anything by showing kindness. And the only reason why Mephibosheth receives anything is because of his relationship to somebody else. Do you see that? It is for Jonathan's sake that David acts. And that action is rooted in a covenant. What a picture of the gospel. In the same way, when God shows us kindness, when God shows us grace, it is not because of anything in us. But He acts for the sake of Christ. He acts according to His covenant, the covenant of grace that He made. Back in Genesis 3, when the whole human race was plunged into sin, plunged into the decay of this present evil age, God immediately set His plan in motion to redeem that which was lost. And it's only through our union with Christ, the eventual seed of the woman, the one who had come according to that promise, that serves, he now serves as the ground of our salvation. You see, all the riches of God's grace come to us because of and in Christ. He is the only one with any real merit. Not us. Him. 
And he's faithful to all of his promise. Picture Mephibosheth with me. He's there, he's prostrate before the king. He was likely crippled with fear in this moment, besides being crippled in his feet. Would David now take his long-awaited revenge on the house of Saul, as was the custom of the day? And in verse 7, we see that instead of the voice of condemnation, he hears the gentle voice of reassurance. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall, listen to this, and you shall eat at my table always. What incredible kindness, what matchless grace. Brothers and sisters, what gospel is this? You see, all of us, to some degree or another, and in some sense or another, are like Mephibosheth, aren't we? We come before the throne of God, exiles from the garden, having lived in the land east of Eden. We come before him with the stench of our sin and the fear of our guilt. We come poor, we come bruised, we come broken by the fall without a plea. All of our accomplishments, all of our prestige, it amounts to nothing. And he welcomes us. And he lavishes us with grace upon grace, grace beyond measure. The reason why God acts with such grace is to further give a display of his glory. Listen very carefully. If man could add anything to his salvation or could boast in even a minor degree of merit. Lord, this is what I got. (laughs) You know, it's not much, but here it is. (laughs) Now you're going to save me, right? If that were the case, God would be robbed of his glory. Jonathan Edwards once said this. He said, We may here observe the marvelous wisdom of God, in the work of redemption. God has made man's emptiness and misery, his low and lost and ruined estate, into which he sunk by the fall, an occasion of the greater advancement of his own glory. As in other ways, so particularly in this, that there is now much more universal and apparent dependence of man upon God. Though God be pleased to lift man out of that dismal abyss of sin and woe into which he has fallen, and exceedingly to exalt him in excellence and honor and to a high pitch of glory and blessedness, yet the creature, listen to Edwards, yet the creature has nothing in any respect to glory of, All glory evidently belongs as in a mere and most absolute and divine dependence on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. 
Edwards always also said this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. This truth, brothers and sisters, delivers a death blow to our pride, and it removes any ground for boasting. And that is why the reformers had in mind, that's what they had in mind when they constantly signed the end of their letters with these words, soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. You have nothing for which to boast in yourself. All glory is God's. You see, such grace is incomprehensible. Mephibosheth voices his amazement there in verse 8. Look what he says in verse 8. He uses these words to voice his amazement. What is your servant? That you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. I have nothing. I am nothing. And even more, I deserve nothing. How could it be that you have shown me such kindness? That would probably be a good way of restating Mephibosheth's amazement. You see, our psychologized culture today, we cringe at the sound of this kind of self-deprecating speech, don't we? Don't we? You know, we're not supposed to ever feel badly about ourselves. We might try to come along Mephibosheth, you know, take him around our arm and say, you know, try to boost his self-esteem, saying, oh, Mephibosheth, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk that way about yourself. You're not a dead dog. No, actually, you've got a lot going for you. <laughs> Hear me out. Hear me out. I think the only reason we often take the ego boost approach, the self-esteem approach, is because as a culture, as a church, and I don't just mean this church, I mean as a church in North America, in the Western world, we have lost sight of the absolute holiness of God. We have lost sight of the radiant, awesome splendor of His majesty. And conversely, we have adopted an upgraded and inflated view of man. We have abandoned the doctrine of depravity. We cannot today say with the Apostle Paul, in my flesh dwells no good thing or as a culture. We cannot say that. We cannot say with the prophet Isaiah in the throne room of God, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It is true. It is true that man has value because he is in fact created in the very image of God. However, that image has been most severely marred by the fall. And despite still existing in the image of God, man, every single one of us is a scoundrel deserving of nothing from God whose condemnation of us is just and right and good. Freedom from despair, brothers and sisters. True and lasting joy, confidence, does not come when 
we look in the mirror and try to convince ourselves that we are not dogs, that we are strong, that we are beautiful, that we are confident, that we are able to meet every obstacle before us. No. Joy and confidence are ours when we call to mind how God, God in unspeakable and unmerited grace condescends from infinite heights of glory. He condescends to save dead dogs like us. So the grace of God does not call us to look inward to find our worth. Inward. But rather it calls us to look to Christ. In Christ, the grace of God invades our little lives from without and it restores to us that which was lost, placing within us our worth, making us then truly shine. The children's storybook Bible actually, I think, says it best. It says, we are not loved because we are lovely. We are rather lovely because we are loved. Finally, we come to the third essential quality of grace. The grace of God is radical. You see, David actually goes far beyond the bounds of the covenant that he made with Jonathan in blessing Mephibosheth. Far beyond it. The blessings of God's grace far exceed what is required. They even far exceed reason and even our imagination. They far exceed what we've merited or earned or could ever even hope for. Look down at verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all, all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. See, Mephibosheth's grandfather, Saul, in his sinful rebellion, had squandered away his inheritance and all the land that the Lord had blessed him with. Mephibosheth received nothing, and he had to live out in exile east of the Jordan. And in the same way, our father, Adam, rebelled against the Lord, and the earth And all of its inheritance was lost. Our inheritance was lost. The redemption of Christ's promises, though, return all of it to us, for the meek shall inherit the earth. You see, the grace of God reaches now as far as the curse is found. Next, we receive a picture of the kingdom in the remaining verses, but Mephibosheth, verses 10 to 13, Mephibosheth, your servant, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem and he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame 
little reminder. He was lame in both of his feet. Mephibosheth is not just given land. No, he is welcomed to the king's table. He is embraced as a son. Listen, we are not just mere benefactors of impersonal grace. We are sons. We are daughters, sons and daughters of the living God. What mercy welcomes us. The Bible speaks uniformly of a day when the kingdom of God will be established and all the redeemed of the earth or of the earth will feast in the house of Zion. Listen to the words of Isaiah 25. He speaks about that day like this. He says, "On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well and refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, This is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Brothers and sisters, what riches of grace are ours that while we were yet sinners, He sought us out. And he welcomes us to sit at his table. In a moment, we'll sit together at the table of the Lord and experience, even just for a moment, a foretaste, just a faint glimmer of that still greater day to come when we'll join together with the people of God from every nation and worship the Lord God and feast with Christ together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this infinite grace. Lord, this grace that is so hard for us even to comprehend. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be lifted towards you in worship. Lord, that when we look upon the darkness of this present evil age, we would not look as those who do not have any hope, but we would know that there is a better world to come and it is secured for us by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, upon whom our sins rested and were paid for. Father, we thank you for your grace, your kindness towards us. Sinners. Lord, we are great sinners, but you are a far greater Savior, and there is more grace, there is more mercy in you than there is sin in us. So, Father, we pray that our worship together would be sweet, 
around the table. And we pray it in Jesus' name.